Welcome to The Gathering Place with Blessed Is She. I'm Jenna Gizar. And I'm Beth Davis. Pull up a chair and grab a drink. Or you could just keep doing what you're doing. Pull up a chair in your heart. (laughs) Come chat with us about Jesus, prayer, community, and life. So let's get started. Hi, Jenna. Hi, Beth. Welcome to the podcast. Wow. I want to make things very formal here. Thanks for that warm welcome. You're so welcome. I'm so glad to have Father John Burns with us today. Hi, Father. Hey, how are you both? I'm super happy to be with you today. We're so glad that you're here and on your very first podcast. Wow. Ever? This is the first time I have ever done a podcast. I think I've only listened to like six or seven podcasts in my life. Our podcast, right, Father? The answer is maybe. It's possible. (laughs) Well, thanks for being with us. Would you mind introducing yourself? Yeah, sure. My name is Father John Burns. I'm a priest of the Archdiocese of Milwaukee, and I was really blessed to get to know all of you on the recent retreat down in Nashville, which was just full of grace. So I'm super happy to be uh, helping you and all the listeners in whatever way I can to just come to know the goodness of the Father's love a little more perfectly. Yes, that is all I want to. Father, it was such a gift to be with you on that Nashville retreat. That was your first exposure to Blessed Is She, right? I mean, obviously, I've seen some stuff flow through the feed on Instagram uh, and Twitter, but I really had never like done much digging to go explore what is this ministry for women, mostly just because it's not really for me. So I just knew about it, but not much in detail. So yes, what a gift that retreat was. I'm still swimming in the grace. Like I've gone back to the things that happened on that retreat so many times in my own prayer and even in conversation. I've pretty much your marketing guy right now. Everyone that I meet in the Archdiocese of Milwaukee, I'm like, hello, are you familiar with Blessed is She? You need to be starting now. Go. I love it. Oh, Father, thanks. Thanks for taking a chance on us. (laughs) (laughs) You took a chance on me. It was great. Yes. Father, I loved when we picked you up at the airport and you just kept on saying, the Lord is a wild man. Jesus is a wild man. And I loved that. I know it's probably not maybe the most clear expression of who God is, but I just feel like he's wild. We can't anticipate or really understand what God's up to. And once in a while we get these glances, he's wild. Like he does crazy, beautiful things and they surprise us and kind of throw us off kilter. And that imbalance often opens us up to just receive something we didn't even know we were looking for, but it's exactly what we needed. And I just feel like that's been my experience of pretty much every day of the priesthood really. It's just like living in that wildness of God's love and God's goodness. It's a very accurate description of my experience of God, just wildly generous Mm. and fun and very into details. God is very into details. That's always a great blessing to me when I get to see him move in these little ways that I don't think anybody knows that I'm longing for or prefer, and yet God does. I was listening to our podcast with Father Keneally. And you had asked me, Beth, what's one of the ways that God's surprising me in prayer right now? And I answered, I'm surprised to see that God's always looking at me, Mm. that God is always attentive to me. Even when I feel like life is in chaos, when I feel like things are out of control, just taking a moment to sit down in my heart. And I always see that he's looking at me. He's always has his attention on me, his gaze on me. I'm always kind of held in that spot. Even if I feel out of control, he's always holding me. And that was something I thought was really cool. And I just have been going back to, especially when I go to adoration and I'm in front of the Blessed Sacrament and I looked at the Blessed Sacrament and I see that his gaze is turned to me there. Sometimes we reduce adoration to just like looking at God 
And we forget that it's totally mutual. In fact, we kind of glance at God throughout the day, and even adoration is like an extended glance at God, but His gaze is just always on us, and we pretty much forget that most of the day. And our moments of little prayer, of sitting down, of turning our attention back to God, that's our just waking up to what's always going on from God's side of things, which is just this perpetual loving gaze of the Father that wants to permeate our lives and penetrate the deepest places and lift them up into the light. Those moments of prayer, like you're saying, Jenna, are so powerfully just reminders of the fact that He never takes His eyes off us, and He's interested in every detail. And this is something, right, that's just been lighting you up, that you've been very passionate about in your own prayer, this idea of the gaze of the Father. Yeah, I've been doing a lot of work in retreats and kind of other extended preaching settings and just noticing how much we have in the book of Genesis, really, that sets up a tone for like the whole rest of the story of our lives. At the beginning, man and woman were eye to eye with God or we walked with God. In a sense, that's standing in God's gaze and returning God's gaze and living in that. And the fall is just this moment where we looked away, you know, and looked at creatures and, and chose creatures over God and displaced God. Most of the rest of our lives are really about coming back into the gaze that we stepped outside of and discovering there how much we find ourselves in God. You know, we look into the face of God to see how he sees us and who we really are because we spend too much time looking at creatures and trying to take our meaning from them, even other people sometimes who aren't able really to give us in the gaze our full meaning. Noticing like in that deep pattern how much the gaze of others is essential also to people, to the person, but also to man and woman and how we're different and informed by the desire to see and be seen. There's this overarching reality of God's gaze on us, right? But normally when I read Genesis, it's like there's Genesis 1, the creation story, Genesis 3, the fall, and there's this other story in between. Lately, something like jumped out of that for me that's just really captivating. And it's the fact that Adam was looking when he was created first from the dust, he's looking at all of these creatures that God is presenting him with and giving them a name over and over and over again. God's presenting these creatures to him and none of them are enough for his heart. You know, he's like always looking for something and seems to be even exasperated by the inability to find a suitable partner. And so in that exhaustion, God puts Adam into a deep sleep, takes the rib out and creates Eve. And there's that moment when Adam first sees Eve and he says, this one at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And it's the at last actually that has really been striking me that like there is this rejoicing in Adam. Like after all of this, I finally found the one who I love. She's flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone. But I've been sitting with what happened in that first moment and the fact that that meeting of man and woman, which is our origin story, man is looking for Eve and then finally sees her and he cherishes her and delights. Eve's experience is like a complementary other way. Eve's first experience is being seen and cherished and delighted in and receiving that gaze of Adam. We notice that man still kind of tends to be the one who's looking around for things to delight in. And woman tends to be the one who receives the gaze and delights in being cherished. And there's a very different kind of way that that trickles down to kind of who men and women are and how like we need each other and how we complement each other. We see it both in the fall in broken ways, but also we see it in a, the possibility of having the gaze and the receipt of the gaze redeemed. For me, hearing you say that 
woman's first experience, Eve's first experience is being seen really sort of undoes this shame that I have felt wanting to be seen. That was what it was always like. That's how I'm meant to be seen. I'm meant to be cherished. That's really a gift to me. It is not a fallen desire for woman to be beautiful. Like she wants to be beautiful and be beheld. That touches upon the original desire of Eve, which is to discover what a gift it is at the core to be blessed by the loving gaze of another who says, you are exactly what I've been searching for. That's originally not a fallen desire to be beautiful and to be seen and to be cherished by the gaze of another. It gets so broken, of course, once we kind of trace out the pattern of sin, right? I mean, Look at how men much more often struggle with custody of the eyes. Like the fallen man continues to look around, you know, and horribly so often, unfortunately, and to use that gaze to get what he wants from others. The same way that fallen woman uses her appearance to get what she wants or to achieve the gaze and to want to be seen in ways that are disordered and harmful. And I just think a part of the conversion journey has to be accepting that this is a part of sort of God's revelation of the original way of the heart. And there's a manner in which that can be redeemed, but also there's a manner in which that it can lead us to sin. And just kind of knowing that liberates us to know and understand ourselves and then how we kind of present ourselves and respond to that presentation in our relationships and our interactions. I love what you're essentially saying is that it is a restoration of the loving and fully accepting, eternally accepting gaze of the Lord. It is right and good to be gazed upon with love by another. And that there is a part of that experience of being loved and cherished that comes through other people, not only in the Lord. It's a both and. Totally. And I think that's so powerfully where we enter into like moving from Genesis into like the new covenant reality that God took up flesh and he did so as, as a man, you know, Jesus Christ, who looked, you know, into the eyes of creatures of other men and women, men especially, I think, have an invitation to stand either in the way of the old Adam or the way of the new Adam, Jesus Christ. You know, we have the challenge really to let God conform our hearts to his And thus to see through the sacred heart, to see through the eyes of Christ, woman in her beauty. And then the gaze that we offer can be redemptive and healing. Or we can fall back on the old way and want to take something or use the power of the gaze to accomplish something for our own ends, which is the old pattern. And how broken that is and how that just perpetuates the life outside of the garden, the life of the old Adam, which is a life of toil and sorrow. I mean, how does Christ stand? He stands in the gaze of the Father constantly, right? Like Christ does nothing without the Father. And so when we are conformed to Christ, we discover the Father. And standing in Christ, we discover the Father's gaze and that an obedience is a great freedom in a manner of bringing us to the fullness that we're meant to have as Christ has redeemed all of creation. We, as men and women, have the opportunity to let that be redeemed or to let that remain fallen. And I think for men, it's an invitation to conformity to the heart of Christ. And for women, it's an invitation to conformity to the Blessed Virgin Mary. I mean, she had to be the most captivating creature that the Lord had ever dreamed up. And the beauty that she bore and what it was to be aware of that but not proud of that, you know, to stand confident before the Father and to let herself be radiant, but to know how to receive the gaze of others. So woman can and should be the new Eve has set the pattern for new woman, for woman to be herself with all the baggage of the fall, but also with an opportunity to rise above that horribly broken original pattern. All I keep thinking about as you're speaking about this beautiful truth is just the disorder that is so hard for us to overcome for others. Even if we're able to see this 
in our own femininity and stand confidently in front of the Lord, but not proud. I like cannot let go of so many broken marriages and so many disordered relationships that maybe one spouse is just struggling so hard to be able to speak truth in any way to their spouse. They're not probably reading whatever it is that you're reading that has lit you up in this way to learn so much about this and study this. And so I just wonder what is kind of a practical thing that we can do as women, not only in marriages, but women who are dating and women who have siblings or fathers, maybe that it's disordered. And in so many ways it affects us, but there's such a helplessness. At the end of the day, so much of healing comes down to personal conversion. The church has given us like a very basic recipe for the life well lived, you know, for an ordered life, which is, you know, to praise and worship the Lord, to celebrate the sacraments, to study with the mind and come to know with the heart what he said to us and what it means and to uproot sin wherever there's sin within us. Because we can't affect any other heart, you know, like I have no way to reach into another person's heart and neither do you. I can only change my own. And so within marriages that are struggling or relationships or trying to figure out how to date, we need to be thinking about that. Like how, Lord, can I place my life most fully in you so that you can, by just your healing gaze and your gentle touch, bring order to those places where I am broken and I also make the brokenness of others a little bit more evident by drawing it out of them. On the dating side of things, we have to set a pretty high bar for a woman to look at a man and say, He's obviously not perfect yet, because no man is, except for the Lord. But is this a man who's capable of placing his heart within Christ's? Is this a man who shows an openness or a willingness to try to move in the direction of seeing me with the eyes of Christ, not the eyes of the old Adam? And the ideal answer is yes, or at least he can move in that direction. In the same way as a man looks at a woman, is this a woman who, you know, is able to present herself to me in a manner that is fitting of the pattern of the Blessed Virgin Mary and not of the broken way? Again, that's a high standard, but when it comes down to things you're doing in relationships, interactions, conversations, it's not too high a thing to just ask, would Jesus really ask me to do that? Or would Jesus do that to me? Or would Jesus expect that of me? Is this an ordered request to make or an ordered activity? Is it something that Jesus would enter into with another or not? What's going on in the heart in those places? Am I willing to show my heart to Jesus as this happens? Am I willing to unveil like my intentions to God? And very often we find ourselves outside of that, which just puts us outside of the gaze again. We're outside of kind of the light of Christ and of the Father. I think that could even be used in friendships. You know, is this a right ordered request to whatever we're talking about? A right ordered conversation. That's what I've been thinking too. That is really cool language, Mm -hmm. I think. Remember WWJD, the bracelets that were like everywhere by these evangelicals? St. Augustine said that way, way, way back. So it's really a question we've always been asking. Like, is that something Christ would do or expect me to do? I don't know. When I bring that into my daily interactions, like to your point, a conversation about someone else, I don't really think that's how the Lord would speak about them. I think he would see what's broken in them and be merciful toward it instead of want to take advantage. So back to the difficulties in marriages that are struggling You can't change your spouse's heart, right? But you can change the way you act toward it. And that often helps kind of bring down some of the layers of how they're responding to you or resisting you or reacting in kind of habitual ways. There really is a way that grace works that is unexpected and inexplicable. Like we can't put words to it. And that when we're living in grace and inviting grace into our lives, grace orders things. Grace restores God's original design 
And so we can only beg God to come to us in the sacraments, to purify our hearts, and to believe that when he does that, he's doing things that I know, but also many things I don't know. And he's working out a deep way of being better for the other. There's a bond of marriage that's a sacrament, right? And the sacrament touches both hearts. And so there's a way into the other heart through the grace of the sacrament when we can't directly move into the other's heart if there's a wall that's gone up or a lot of brokenness is entered in. There's a way of just inviting Jesus, who knows our heart and is bound himself to us by the covenant to reach into that heart and rearrange things by grace so the other heart is better disposed to just what we're trying to get over in ourselves and we're trying to offer more perfectly to the beloved, to the other. While we have to be practical, we also have to say, Lord, I just believe you can do anything and so I'm just going to ask you to do the impossible because with you nothing really is impossible. I found myself recently praying as a result of just a really beautiful conversation with a priest friend talking about the drama of the complementary nature of man and woman. And just some of the language that he gave me for that really led to these deeper revelations of like my own experience and my own desire, my own heart, but also my desire to see God restore masculinity and femininity in the people that I love. So I've started praying with that. I've started asking God to restore so-and-so's masculinity, not from a place of judgment or or lack, but because I want him to deeply understand who he is as a son of the Father. And I've been praying that for myself too. God, would you restore my femininity that I wouldn't hide or feel ashamed or seek attention? You know, just to right order my femininity has been a really powerful way to pray for people, for myself. Amen. When masculinity is well-ordered, or at least accessible to God, and femininity is as well, they restore one another because they're parts of the whole. Like, God could have made human, and he didn't, you know? Good, authentic friendships between men and women, and relationships, courtships, and marriages, it's restorative of the heart, principally because our masculinity and femininity don't really make any sense without the other. Adam wasn't really aware he was a man until he saw Eve, you know, and Eve, if she was just created and stood alone, she wouldn't be aware of her femininity until she encountered the other. When the other is, you know, living in a state of grace and striving to be holy, the Lord is going to restore us through our friendships with each other, which are always challenging, but also when we're both seeking the good and that ideal of friendship that we want something not for ourselves, but for a greater good beyond us and want to lift the other up to that in pursuit of heaven, it's restorative to know friends, to know others, to see in the other person how they see us and what they invite us to and what they challenge us to. And I just think we have to kind of stand in that with a little bit more confidence, obviously cautious. You don't want to be reckless in friendships or relationships, but to just kind of admit that I bear within me a lot of imperfection and I'm rather incomplete. And the Lord's going to put in front of me all kinds of relationships that he intends to use to restore me because I need the other to understand myself. I've just had some experiences recently with good friends, good men, married men, priests, where there's something in me when I'm around their true, safe, brave masculinity that I feel more myself, that my heart blooms around good men. It's just been a beautiful, practical experience of this biblical reality that's always been there. I'm just starting to experience for myself. I like that language, especially of the heart blooming. I just have this image of Eve in that moment turning, you know, and being cherished. And 
if Adam, the first man, failed to protect Eve, he was right there and he just let her go. The first failure of man is to not uphold her and to not protect her. I don't know, maybe there was a moment right after the fall when Eve experienced sin first for chronologically a second or two before it entered him. And she had this moment of like real aloneness and being like, oh, he abandoned me. He's not safe. I can't trust him. And so what you're talking about there, Beth, is like this experience of men who are conformed to the new Adam. And what does Christ do? He comes to do what the first Adam couldn't do, to protect the bride, to fight for her, to establish her, and to help her to bear good fruit onto salvation. And so a man who's conformed to the heart of Christ and is striving to live in that heart is undoing that pattern. And actually, the Lord is going to strike at that first lie that kind of entered into Eve's heart about whether or not she's enough or why he would let her fall like this, why he'd leave her. Christ and a man conformed to Christ is offering an alternative narrative there, which is a truthful narrative, which is that like, oh, I would never leave you. I'm here for you. I exist to bless, uphold, protect, cherish, and honor you. These are just original battles between truth and lies. And men who are conformed to Christ are able to speak into the world and the heart of woman is supposed to be a pattern of establishing truth about identity in place of lie that was just rooted very, very deeply in the heart. I was just writing for our Lent devotional next year. And one of the things I was writing about is how I walked into the room of my little baby who was crying. And right when I walked into the room, she stopped crying out because just by my presence, she was saved, right? Just by my presence, she knew that I was going to come for her and help her and be there for her. I kept on using kind of repetitive language, like she's saved, she's rescued. I wanted to say protected because ultimately I wanted to then mirror that that's what Jesus does for us, right? He comes into our lives and he saves us and he rescues us. But I was just held back by this language of protection because I think I have this fear inside of me thinking of the woman who's going to be reading this, who wasn't protected in some way, who was abused in some way or was taken advantage of. And it feels like the Lord did not protect her. And I find it beautiful that you use that language of Jesus being the new Adam who protects us as women, you know, so often we have to right order our relationship with God the Father, right? And really let go of or work on restoring maybe the face of God the Father that we put on him from our human father, right? And so I wonder how we go about doing that if there is a time in our lives where we haven't been protected Jenna, that's such a good question. I think there are two parts to an answer. The first would be, let's say someone has a memory of not being protected and really being hurt. And then maybe they're still in that relationship even. And so they're just wondering if they can trust the other or if it's safe for them. Christ himself is always doing the work of the new Adam, of reestablishing a covenant and undoing the work of the old Adam. And so Wherever we fall into sin, right, we're acting in the pattern of the old Adam. We've not yet put on the new man that Paul talks about a lot of different ways. And available to us always in our interior lives is relationship with and intimacy with Christ, who is the new Adam. Christ is in our interior lives always restoring and sowing truth where lies were sown because of the fallen patterns of the old Adam. And so for someone who has the memory or the experience of not having been protected or safe because of the experience of a man who hurt them or left them or used them and cast them aside, in their interior lives, there's an invitation into the heart of Jesus to remember that that was a fallen pattern that has cut them to the core, but there's a deeper core. 
that is possessed by Jesus Christ and is sacred. You know, the inner room that Christ talks about in Matthew 6, that's the sanctuary of the soul. And Christ abides there, and that's where he invites us to abide with him. And so even the person who's been so hurt is always invited to seek Christ in that inner room and to there to address the Father with him. And that is a discovery of like a deeper pattern of the new Adam to never leave and to always be there. I know there's a way of praying where we invite Jesus to help us see the story of our lives through his eyes. So there's a story, right? That's the unfolding of events chronologically, one order to the next with the beginning, a middle, and an end. And then there's the narrative, which is recounting the story. And we're always narrating the story, right? We're telling about what happened, sometimes to ourselves, sometimes to others, sometimes just in the way that we present ourselves. We're narrating a story. And what we discover because of sin and lies and confusion, our narrative often doesn't actually match the story. Like the way we remember things or know ourselves or recount events is influenced by our own experiences of the story. God sees through the narrative to the truth of what actually happened and how all that has ever happened to us fits into this unfolding plan that is his. So part of the healing journey of prayer is to just invite the Lord to draw near to us and help us kind of correct the narrative and notice where there are skips in our story or where there are parts that we are often really stirred up by to kind of ask him, you know, Lord, how did you see that? This is how I'm remembering it. And it still makes me really upset or sad or resentful. How did you see that? And even if it's a case of like trauma, where were you there, Lord? And to invite him to tell us about that. And this often comes through prayer. I've had a lot of really beautiful experiences of praying with people who have been traumatized. Because of the growth in their faith many, many years later, the discovery that, in fact, Jesus was there and that he wants to tell them about why he would allow that to happen. Because that allowance of that evil fit into the larger plan of what God wanted to bring about later, which was a deeper receipt of grace made possible because there was a greater need for the grace And of course, that's what we see on the cross, right? Like we see that God, the Father himself, did not prevent the death of his only begotten son, even though it was affected and brought about by sinners and by injustice. He didn't stand in the way of that because he saw how later on he would bring about some beautiful good, the greatest good. And that's the story of all of our injuries and our wounds and our traumas. Christ is there. God is allowing that to happen because he sees later how it'll fit. We carry within us a narrative that's warped or confused, or twisted. And the journey of healing is often, Jesus, come narrate the story of my life to me, or tell me the real story. Help me to see how you see it, and how it all fits into one whole that is moving me toward the heart of God, and eternal life in the kingdom. It's one of the best explanations of healing of memories, and inviting Jesus into pain, or confusion. I'm very grateful, thank you. Sometimes it feels impossible to receive that painfully loving gaze of God when our experiences on earth have not communicated that we're worthy or cherished. We all bear so much brokenness and much brokenness begins with the gaze of another. You know, so many activities that have hurt us start with a look. Someone looks at us and then chooses to hurt us. And so our memories of being hurt began with someone looking at us often, uh, especially in the case of deep pain. And so there is this like fearfulness about the gaze. Like, what is this person who's looking at me? What comes next? What are they going to do? And so there's this hesitancy about the gaze. And with that, even this fear of really deeply being seen. And if we pull that back to origins, I mean, what did Adam and Eve do? They hid, right, from each other. They covered their bodies and then they hid from God. And so 
there's some sort of fear of being known, a fear of being seen, and just a fear of what it would be like to just receive the unbroken, eternal, loving gaze of God. And yet we desire it. Like, look at the Psalms, how often they're crying out, like, Lord, let us see your face. Like, I want to see you. I long to look upon you. So I gaze on you in the sanctuary. It's the cry to be seen and to see, but we're also a little bit afraid of it. I remember my mom, when I was a little kid, I remember playing with my Legos. It must have been like first grade. And she just came into the room and I noticed that she was there, you know, and then she just didn't really move around and wasn't doing anything. She's standing there. So I looked at her and she's just looking at me and I went back to playing. And then like a minute or two later, she's still looking at me. And so I like glanced at her and I was like, what? And she's like, nothing. I was like, what, what are you doing? She's like, I'm just looking at you. I just remember not being able to receive the gaze of my mother who just wanted to cherish me. The effect of the fall is still this difficulty receiving the gaze of the other, even in a human setting. And so I think it's sort of this with trepidation sometimes that we consider what it would be like to receive God's gaze, even while we desire it so deeply. And in the final analysis, I just think a very helpful image to come back to where we started for our prayer is that when we sit down to pray, we are choosing to set aside a lot of things, activities, thoughts, distractions, things that have covered over our hearts. We're choosing to unveil the heart and just let God look at us and speak to us about what's going on and how it could go better and how we could be ever more perfectly His. And so to kind of conceptualize our prayer as just choosing to come before the Lord, who is always looking upon us, I think if we just habituated that and let that become like how we approach prayer, I think that alone would heal us in marvelous ways that could then fit into like broader strategies of healing and the many books and theories that have been written. I think we have to just conceptualize the fact that when we pray, we're coming into the gaze of the Lord, which is where we belong. It's how we were created, and it's ultimately where we desire to be. It's made available to us in the gift of the interior life, especially through our prayer. Father, would you just pray in that way, kind of invite us into the gaze and to receive the look of the Father? Sure. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, loving God, You've stirred many things up in our hearts and caused us to consider, to remember, to ponder. And we just ask you now to gently press those things aside and help us to realize that you have raised them up so you could explain us to ourselves, but that you wish to do so not so much in words, but by your loving gaze. So Father, help us to just receive the truth that you have always looked upon us with delight, that your gaze has never left us. And that you wish to heal us deeply. And so we just ask you to very gently, Lord, lift our gaze to yours and hold it there. Help us to just offer to you the many things you've stirred, the memories, the thoughts. Just offer those back to you. And letting go of them, Lord, just hold us in your gaze in this moment. We give you permission, Heavenly Father, to look into the deepest place within us the darkest place, the places maybe that we're afraid to bring to the light, but we gently give you permission to look there, to behold us there, and we quietly offer ourselves back to you there as your sons and as your daughters. We just wish to be your sons and daughters, Lord. We wish to receive that gift, and so please give it to us now if you would, and help us to cherish and receive that. Holy Spirit, protect our hearts and convict us in the great truth that the gaze of the Father, which is perfect in healing, is upon us now. Jesus, hold us close. Grant us the grace to walk with you who are the way, 
and in you to look always to the Father, to let his will be the bread of our lives, so that with you we can receive and know the truth that all things are possible, even healing, even blessing, even a way where there seems to be no way, even salvation. Come, Holy Spirit, convict us in these truths and grant us this grace. We ask all of this through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Father. Thank you, Father. You're welcome. Thanks so much for gathering with us here on the Blessed Is She podcast. Send over all your questions using the Anchor app. We'd love to hear from you. Connect with us at blessedishe.net slash community and join us on all your favorite social media platforms. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. I love Twitter. Until next time.